The church board meeting went long one night, not here, but at some other church where people got angry with each other and sometimes tried to use Robert's rules of order in order to get their own way. They'd be like, I call the question, and someone else would say, what does that mean? And it'd be like, I don't know, but it's a thing, isn't it? Can we do that? And at the end of all the debate and all the different points of view, they finally had a vote, and the church clerk stood up and said, all right, the vote is as follows. John, Ruth, Sue, Mark, and Ed are in favor of the proposal. God and I are against it. Put that in the minutes. Often we think God is on our side, not in the way that Scripture seems to indicate it, but that He is behind everything that we view. He views things that way. Behind everything that we want, He wants the same thing. Behind everything I'm trying to do, He undoubtedly is trying to do it as well. And here in the book of Acts, we see, especially in these last few chapters, that Paul knows that God wants to do something through him, and here he stands before the Sanhedrin who are equally sure, with equal zeal, that God sees things their way. And what happens is definitely worse than any church council meeting I have ever attended in all my years in church leadership. Now, if you were not here last week, what's happening is that Paul had tried to help somebody go through with carrying out a Jewish vow so that it would be seen that he's not anti-Jewish, but he's actually pro-Jewish. He's just also preaching the gospel. But in the process of doing that, a riot started because some Jews were like, I saw him with a Gentile, so I assume he brought the Gentile into the temple, but he didn't bring the Gentile into the temple. They were mistaken or they were lying. And then there was a big uprising and people were beating Paul up. And then somebody from the Fortress Antonia saw this happening and one of the Roman soldiers ran down and they went, they broke the whole thing up and they said, what's going on? They couldn't get a straight answer out of anybody. And so somebody finally said, all right, bring him back into the barracks. We'll deal with this tomorrow. That's where our text picks up today. So Lysias, he's the tribune. He's the guy who's in charge of kind of security in the temple from a Roman perspective, is still unsure what is going on, why Paul is being attacked. At first, he thought he was one of these guys who was in league with the Sicarii, the assassins, that he was there to try and kill people in the temple. That was obviously not true. He thought he was an Egyptian. That wasn't true. He thought he was probably somebody uneducated and maybe some kind of a hillbilly militant out running maneuvers in the woods. But then when Paul spoke to him, he spoke Greek. And so he is really not sure. He, he, he wants to get to the center, to the bottom of this unrest in the temple so that he can deal with the problem and be done with it. And he knows that Paul was at the core. He is the man in question. He knows that the people as a whole and the priests and leadership in particular are very much against Paul. And he knows that it has something to do vaguely with Gentiles. That much for sure. And he knows that every time he tries to get to the bottom of it, the whole thing threatens to blow up like a powder keg, that there are tempers running high and that there are people ready even to do violence. And so in order to get the full story, to clear this thing up once and for all, he calls for a nice orderly closed door meeting of the high council, the Sanhedrin, because there's virtually no way that that could devolve into violence. Am I right? The Tribune, notice, a Roman official then convenes the highest Jewish court. There's been questioned and a lot of ink spilled about how could this be allowed to happen? 
Is this how low things have sunk where Rome has wrested that power? Or more likely, is it because Ananias, the high priest at the time, was more a puppet of Rome than almost any other high priest who had come before him? And perhaps that's why he was able to stay in power so long. And just a side note, this is not Annas, the high priest before whom Jesus stood when, when he was on trial. This is Ananias. And sometimes Bible names are hard, but it's a different guy. Now, when he was standing before the crowds, Paul began his address very uh, respectfully and, and very cordially. He said, brothers and fathers. And he got maybe halfway through what he intended to say before they were shouting him down and trying to tear him apart. And the Romans wisely grabbed him, physically picked him up, and brought him back into the barracks where they could protect him. This time, before the council, he gets just a few words, just one sentence, into his prepared remarks before once again they shut him down and once again resort to violence. And again he begins respectfully saying, Brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all conscience this day. Can you see why that made them mad? How dare he? Brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience this day. And you can imagine that Paul had at least some basic outline in his mind of what he would say. Now, we know that Jesus said, don't bother to decide ahead of time because the Spirit will give you what to say in the moment. But as the Spirit is telling him, Paul is leaning into something, but he doesn't have a chance to unload it and unfurl it and say, here's my defense. Rather, he's shut down almost instantly. The word for I have fulfilled my duty, by the way, woodenly translated, is I have been a citizen. Before God, I have been a citizen. He's talking about his citizenship in the heavenly kingdom. When he stood before Rome and he was about to be flogged, he said, I'm a citizen of Rome. And when he stands before the Sanhedrin, he says, I have been a faithful citizen of God's kingdom. And to the Romans, he says one thing. To the others, he evokes something else. And, and both of these, your citizenship here on earth, your citizenship in heaven are good, and both can be used to further the Great Commission, as Paul shows us. We're not sure exactly what enrages them. Maybe his insistence that he's done nothing wrong, which implies that they're making something of nothing. Maybe it's that he doesn't avert his eyes or study the floor or genuflect, but rather it says he looks straight at them. And if we know anything of Paul from tradition, it's that when he looked straight at you with that big unibrow and those sharp eyes, it was a little bit disconcerting. Or maybe it's that he calls them my brothers, not masters or teachers. But by appealing to his own conscience here, Paul is doing something very Baptist. And I mean that only tongue partway in cheek. And I think this may be what really angers them. My conscience has been good, has been clean, as I stood before God, as I testify before you. He's implying that there is an authority that is higher than this one that he is being judged by right now, than this, this council that is convened, the highest one in the land. And he's saying, I have to follow my conscience. Proclaiming the gospel and defending the gospel, as Paul is doing here, effectively does require us to live a holy life and to have a good conscience, a clear conscience, not a perfect life. Oh, Jesus did that. He did that on your behalf because you couldn't do it and neither could I. That's what the gospel story is. Jesus keeping the law perfectly on our behalf 
that being imputed to us, him being crucified for our sins and our sins being imputed to him. But it's not just a story about what Jesus did for us, but it's also about what he's doing in us. So if I am living a a life of flagrant sin and then I share the gospel, you can be saved from your sin. I'm going to look like a hypocrite and others are going to say, well, how come it didn't work for you? Or is this just a legal fiction? God pretends I'm not a sinner. Will I go on being as much of a rascally sinner as possible? This is not helpful. But there's something else going on here as well. In order to effectively proclaim the gospel, defend the gospel, we must have a clear conscience. That's inward. There's the whitewashed tomb and the whitewashed wall, which we'll get to in just a moment, but all that is outward. People can see the cracks in that. They can see you claim one thing, but you live another life. When there's a a big clergy scandal, which has been happening all the time over the past few years, and we find out someone has been preaching, walking the straight and narrow, and in their private life they have been just doing all sorts of adultery or drugs or, or embezzlement or whatever the case, we say, Wow, that ruins their testimony. But even if you were able to keep the outside of the dish perfectly clean, and no one could see through the cracks, if inwardly your conscience is not clear, you will not be able to proclaim the gospel to someone with any kind of earnestness, with any kind of truth behind it. Because you'll know that you're holding back a sin from God in yourself. Now the conscience is not perfect. It is not the source of our knowledge. In fact, conscience, conscience, from the Latin means with knowledge. Same thing in the Greek. The words that's used here, it means with knowledge. It doesn't give us the knowledge. It's a way that we use the knowledge that we have. It's something that's happening with the knowledge that we've, we've gained through our reading of scripture, through our being taught and raised up and, and taught our values. Conscience is not infallible. Paul's was clear, it seems. Well, he persecuted the church because he thought he was in the right. With what knowledge he had, it did seem to be the case. It was incomplete. And that's where Jesus came in, and the good news saved Paul so that he could proclaim to the Sanhedrin, if only I had known then what I know now, I would not have persecuted them. Oswald Chambers wrote this, Conscience is that ability within me that attaches itself to the highest standard I know, and then continually reminds me of that standard and what demands that I have. It is the eye of the soul which looks out either toward God or toward what we regard as the highest standard. This explains why conscience is different in different people. If I am in the habit of continually holding God's standard in front of me, my conscience will always direct me to God's perfect law and indicate that what I should do. The question is, will I obey? I have to make an effort to keep my conscience so sensitive that I can live without any offense toward anyone. I should be living in such perfect harmony with God's Son that the spirit of my mind is being renewed through every circumstance of life and that I may be able to quickly prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. There, quoting the Apostle. This is all he's claiming. What I know to be true, I've lived by it. I stand before you not as a guilty man, but someone who can put his head on a pillow or on a stone slab in a prison cell or wherever I am at night and sleep and sleep deeply. Now, what about when we sin? Well, Hebrews tells us that the blood of Christ 
cleanses our conscience. It tells us that more than once. And so when you are not clear of conscience, that should drive you to the cross in confession, knowing what we read in 1 John chapter 1, he will forgive us all our sin and cleanse us of all our unrighteousness and our conscience will be clean once again. Making this claim, though, causes Ananias to say, hey, hit that guy on the mouth. Why? Because it was his mouth that he had used to speak such blasphemy, whatever the blasphemy supposedly was. And so they hit him in the face. Now, this is a very different word from the one that Jesus uses when he says, if somebody slap you on one cheek, turn to him the other cheek as well. That would be a, a kind of scoffing, insulting snap, slap. This is a blow, or as the King James would say, smiting him, smiting him on the cheek. And it could be used with an open palm, but more likely with a fist. He was, he was rocked a little bit and probably a little punchy in the moments after he was hit. And, and even reading about this for me brings on this feeling of deja vu. In fact, very much Paul was walking in the Lord Jesus' footsteps as he came to Jerusalem and throughout these trials. Both Paul and Jesus make journeys to Jerusalem knowing that they will be arrested and persecuted when they arrive there. Both of them are uh, advised not to go by those people who follow them and both overrode that saying, no, I've got you, God insists that I go. Both are seized by mobs who shout, quote, away with this man, meaning they want him taken away and killed. Both have four hearings, public hearings. Jesus before the Sanhedrin, then Pilate, then Herod, then Pilate again, and Paul before the Sanhedrin, then Felix, then Festus, then Herod uh, Agrippa. And as we see here, both of them are struck during their trial for getting lippy with the high priest. Both struck illegally, by the way. You could not do something like that until a sentence had been declared, although they had very different responses. Here is Jesus' response in John 18. He says, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught the synagogue, uh, in the synagogues or the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. And when Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what, it is, what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? So Jesus kind of calmly refutes and, and rebukes the person for doing something illegal. Paul, on the other hand, oh boy, he starts going into angry prophet mode. Either way, the fact that both the Lord Jesus and the Apostle Paul, for speaking truth, which in both cases seems rather benign, were punched, were struck. They raised the ire of the people who had the power and the people who set the culture. And that should be something we would expect to do then as well. Not maybe to get punched every day, but we're going to raise the ire of the people who have the power and the people who set the values of our culture. We're way too worried today about offending the world. The church doesn't need to worry about offending the world. We need to worry about not offending the world. Because if it doesn't bring an offense, it's not the cross. The cross, which is foolishness. Foolishness to Gentiles. A stumbling block to Jews. If it's not offensive, it's been doled down. Bonhoeffer wrote this, Christianity stands or falls by its revolutionary protest against violence arbitrariness and pride of power and by its defense of the weak 
I feel that Christianity is doing too little in making these points, rather than doing too much. Christianity has adjusted itself much too easy to the worship of power. It should give much worse offense, more shock to the world than it is doing. Christianity should take a much more definite stand for the weak than for the potential moral right of the strong. Ananias, of course, was the strong, and he thought he was morally right, and he was as corrupt as they come. Josephus tells us all about him. He would send his guys to go and confiscate and steal grain tithes that were supposed to go and feed the common priests. And so elderly people starved to death because he wanted more. He wanted a surplus. He had no qualms about using violence or even ordering assassinations to further his own agenda. And so Paul rails against him. You strike me, God will strike you down, you whitewashed wall. You whitewashed wall. Now that, of course, brings to mind the passage that Mimi read earlier where Jesus calls the Pharisees and the teachers of the law whitewashed tombs that outside have been made to look very nice and clean and orderly, but inside are rotting filth and stench and dead men's bones and decomposition. But the whitewashed wall, it's a little bit different of a notion. It was a common saying because it comes from Ezekiel 13. It's that whole passage about woe to those who say peace, peace, when there is no peace. You've treated the, the wound of my people lightly. And in the midst of that, there's this picture of having built up a wall, like a really bad flimsy wall out of loose stone. And then instead of coming with mortar and reinforcing it and building it so that it's strong, they came and whitewashed the whole thing so it looked like it had been strengthened. And they said, look at that. We did a good job. And the thing looks good, but then a little wind and a little rain come and knock it right over. Paul is telling Ananias that he may look the part of a righteous judge, but he's all show. He's a pretender. He's a hypocrite. There's nothing to him but the outer veneer, the seat in the Sanhedrin, and a position he is not worthy to inhabit. And of course, he was also a whitewashed tomb to boot looking righteous from the outside, but inside full of hate and deceit and violence and all the rest. God will strike you, is the warning. And it does come true. At the very beginning of the Jewish war in uh, AD 66, he is killed by the Sicarii. Remember them? The dagger men. They went and stabbed him to death because he was so much a puppet of Rome that they could not stand his being in that seat of the high priest one more day. The people rose up and he was murdered. Now he's called on this. Do you dare speak to the high priest this way? And this is where things get a little uh, open to interpretation. Because Paul says, I'm sorry, I didn't know it was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now how could he not know? He's looking right at them, it tells us in verse 1. He's looking intently at them. There are several possibilities here. First of all, it seems that Paul had an issue with his eyesight. His eyesight is failing. When you read Galatians, he talks about how, I know you would gladly give me your eyes if I needed them, and, and look how big the letters are that I write when I write with my own hand. Perhaps he never fully regained his full vision after he was blinded on the road to Damascus or something to that effect. Some people think that his thorn in the flesh that he asked God to remove was poor eyesight, fading eyesight. This is all speculation, but it's possible. Some have suggested Paul, 
who was clearly very tight with a previous high priest, had been away from Jerusalem and out of the loop of this temple stuff for so long that he just doesn't recognize the high priest. But if he could see him, he would know simply by the seat that he was in during the proceedings, the vestments that he wore, he's the high priest. Just like if I showed you like five guys and I'm like, which of these guys is the Pope? You wouldn't have to know his face to be like, that guy, I can tell by the way he's dressed. Some have said maybe they gathered him together quickly and they didn't have time to put on their vestments, but now we're just introducing things to the text that aren't even there. I think rather what's going on is that Paul is being a little coy. He's saying, oh, I didn't recognize you, high priest. You're not acting very much like a high priest. Kind of like that old sermon illustration, or maybe it's a joke. Sometimes the line is blurred. Where somebody's driving down the street and they're pulled over by a police officer and the guy runs up and he's got his hand on his gun and he says, let me see your license and registration. Keep your hands where I can see them. And what what did I do wrong, officer? I had reason to believe that you are in a stolen car. It was reported stolen? Well, it wasn't reported stolen. But I saw how you cut off that lady and then you flipped off that other guy and then you were tailgating that poor kid who was just trying to learn how to drive. And then I saw your Jesus bumper stickers and assumed the car was stolen. In the same way, I think Paul may be saying, yeah, I just assumed that you bought those vestments on eBay or something. I didn't know he was really the high priest. But whatever the case, Paul does submit himself to the scripture he even quotes it, Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight: you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. And he does so in a way that might be wrapped around a jab. And that's not without precedent. In that other text that was read for us by Mimi earlier, remember Jesus said these people who are Pharisees or these people who are in the position of authority in the priesthood, they're, they're in Moses' seat. They're the ruler, but let me tell you about them. And he goes on to say whitewashed tombs. They're people that you have to respect and submit to, but recognize that they're not what they present themselves to be. But Paul here shows more respect for the law than this high priest who accuses him has ever shown. And and then the whole thing takes a left turn. Paul doesn't try to get back on track with the thing he was presenting, which is his own defense. Instead, using basic discernment and led by the Spirit, he can see that these people are not going to give him a fair trial, that they are not going to be open to hearing the gospel. They wouldn't even let him get one sentence out, that they're not going to possibly consider the claims of Jesus Christ, that they're looking for an excuse to mock the gospel and attack him. They're they're, they're going to hear, but they're not going to comprehend. And he undoubtedly remembers the words of Jesus. Do not give dogs that which is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to swine. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. And these people are in the process of this. And they want to tear him to pieces. In fact, at the end of the text, we're told that uh, the, the Romans had to pull him out of there because he thought they were going to tear him to pieces, word for word. And so he realizes he's done for unless he can do something in order to kind of take his pearls and go home. And while he's thinking perhaps about Jesus teaching about dogs and swine, he starts acting like a snake and a dove at the same time. Remember, Jesus told us to be as crafty as serpents and as innocent as doves, or as shrewd as serpents and as harmless as doves. 
And here, he, his conscience is clear, as he told us, but he is very shrewd. This is a classic move. Divide them against each other. It's like in a, a movie from the 90s with some, some tired com- committee script where somebody's about to, to get blown away, and they say, oh, man, you're going to do all this for a mere $5,000? And then one of the bad guys looks at the other guy and says, 5000 I thought it was 100000 And then they're pointing their guns at each other, and then you can slip out the back. Only Paul does it in a little bit more uh, kind of blasé way. He brings up an old theological argument that these people have had for as long as these groups have existed. This is kind of what the woman at the well tried to do with Jesus. He starts talking to her about her sin and her need for a savior and her need for this living water that would quench what she is looking for. And she's uncomfortable and so she says, well, do you think we ought to worship here at Mount Gerizim or where you Jews worship in Jerusalem? And he doesn't get sidetracked and dragged away. He stays on message. He says, don't worry about that. Here or there, the right way to worship. The day is coming and has already come where you've got to worship in spirit and in truth. And he gets the gospel through to her. She accepts him as the Messiah. And then she becomes an instant missionary and wins like the whole city over to him because he didn't get dragged off track. But sometimes, and in this case seems to be one of those cases, causing a big tangent is helpful. It's to his advantage in these proceedings. Paul, you see, his his pattern has always been first he goes to the Jews, then he goes to the Gentiles. He even said salvation comes from the Jews. He's already presented the gospel in the temple to the people and been shut down. He's tried to do it here in the Sanhedrin and been shut down. And so now, after failing to get through to these highest Jewish authorities, he's got his eyes set to the highest pagan authorities. He's going to go through governors and rulers all the way right up to Caesar in Rome. That's his plan. And so he says, you know, I'm on trial here because I'm a Pharisee. He still considers himself a Pharisee. He's not lying. He says, I believe, like all these Pharisees, in the resurrection of the dead, and that's why I'm being persecuted, and it works like a charm. Immediately, the Sadducees turn against the Pharisees, and the Pharisees against the Sadducees. You know, in the Apostles' Creed, we end the whole creed with, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. In the Nicene Creed, we end the whole creed with, we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. In both cases, that's the end. That's the ultimate hope that we have. And the Pharisees had that hope as well. We read of many Pharisees coming to faith in Jesus. I don't know that we ever read of a Sadducee coming to faith. There are, are, quote, many priests who did. Maybe they were of the Sadducee sect, but those Sadducees were were not likely to consider the, the possibility that Jesus rose from the dead, that he's the first fruits of those born. The Pharisees were closer, and so they began to fight here. The Pharisees are thinking about the next life. They're thinking about their spiritual standing. The Sadducees are thinking about living the good life now. And they only affirmed the Pentateuch. So there's no angels or demons, no reward or punishment after death, no resurrection. I mean, why bother with any of this stuff, you might say? Why be religious if everyone just takes the big dirt nap and that's it? It's because they were part of a priestly aristocracy. And it gave them power and privilege and money and a good life. And so, of course, they wanted to keep a good thing going. 
It didn't go much longer after this because the temple was destroyed, but as long as they could keep it going, they did. The Pharisees, however, believed in divine providence and the resurrection and angels and, and demons and a final judgment. And Pharisaical Judaism is essentially what became modern-day Judaism. And you go, that just sounds like Judaism. Yeah, but there were many different kinds uh, in Jesus' day and the day of the apostles. So this old debate comes back to life. They're shouting at each other, and I am 99% sure that if you or I could be a fly on the wall in that room and look real close at Paul's face as this unfolds, he would be smirking just a little bit. Especially when the Pharisees go to bat for him because it helps their case. Well, maybe what he's saying, maybe a spirit appeared to him or an angel. We're open to that, aren't you? In fact, this guy seems clean to me. And they start going, going head to head with this, the Sadducees saying, Paul is probably okay. The one time this happens, they otherwise can't stand the Apostle Paul. And notice in the Gospels, the one time the Pharisees in general applaud Jesus' teaching is when the tra Sadducees tried to trap Jesus about the resurrection saying, well, if somebody dies, you know, and then she marries the brother, and then he dies, she marries the brother, blah, blah, blah. In this resurrection you're talking about, who will she be married to? That is the only time when Jesus made the Sadducees look stupid with his answer that some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher. The one time they kind of came together, and Paul, he plays this thing like a violin. And notice that they say, perhaps a spirit or an angel spoke to him. Yeah, they'll get under the Sadducees' skin because those Sadducees don't believe in spirits or angels, but the Pharisees don't consider that perhaps the resurrected Christ actually did speak to Paul. And I think this is something we need to be careful with as well when we proclaim the gospel. Somebody agreeing, ardently agreeing with part of it. Ardently agreeing, yeah, there's a God. Yeah, absolutely, I believe in a heaven and hell. I'm with you, man, all right. But hold on. Jesus, who is he? Oh, uh, yeah, I mean, he's good. He was, he was a great teacher. Was he the son of God? Sure, the only begotten son of God. You've got to make sure that someone doesn't cut you off at the past by agreeing with just part of what you want to present. These Pharisees could walk that doctrinal line almost to the end with Paul, but where they veered off was before salvation comes at the cross. And Paul really isn't just playing a dirty trick here. Well, the riot had begun when someone accused him of taking a Gentile into the temple. The Sanhedrin doesn't seem to call any witnesses or even repeat that claim. Paul knows what the real issue here is. It's that he follows a man that they had put to death, and he claims that he is alive forevermore. And notice he makes the resurrection the central issue when he stands before Felix, and in a sense when he stands before Festus as well, who are Gentile governors. It just so happens to also help him out a bit here in causing some chaos, a little cover under which he can duck out and say, all right now, my eyes are set on Rome. Because he recognizes at a certain point, what I got to do is just say, I'm not getting through to this person, I'm just handing them pearls so they can crush them, and then turn on me. What I need to do is step back for a while and pray. I needed to pray and put this in God's hands and ask for when that next opportunity comes and the Spirit has been tilling the heart that I will see it and I will grab it once again, if and when it ever comes. And think about this, when this argument gets going, think about how confused poor Lysias probably is now 
Okay, I thought this was about Gentiles being brought into the temple, and then it was about something else, but it was about this other guy. Now it's about the resurrection? He's got to be completely confused. All he knows is that he has to get in there and save Paul because Paul is about to be torn to pieces. Once again, thank God for Lysias. But think about how discouraging this must have been for Paul. He was certain or at least very confident that he could get through to these men. He had wanted to stay in Jerusalem back at the beginning, saying, I know these people, I love these people, I can reach them. But remember what he says that God told him. Uh, he says it back here in uh, twenty-two eighteen. When I returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. He must be heartbroken here. He knew he was the apostle to the Gentiles, but he loves Israel. He loves Israel. And he wants to see all Israel saved. And of course, we read in Romans that he still has hope that it will happen. So the tribune came in and said to him, tell me, are you a citizen? And he said, yeah, I'm a citizen. And so he said, I appeal to Caesar. That's where he's headed. And then we have this one little addendum here at the end of chapter 22 that makes the whole thing all the sweeter, I think. Because Paul, he's been beaten up by a mob then he's been roughly brought into the barracks and stretched out. He was going to be flogged. That's uncomfortable. Then he's punched in the mouth by these people who are supposed to be seeking justice. Now he's bodily hauled out, put back in a cell in the barracks. And what happens? Jesus appears to him. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. See, Paul knew where he wanted to go and what he was called to do, but the road is hard, and so Jesus says, I will be with you, and you will make it there. What a comfort that must have been to him. In Acts 18, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. And now he says, you, you've testified to my name here, you did a good job. That's done, though. Now we're headed to Rome, and you must testify there as well. And this word that Jesus uses for take courage or take heart, this word is unique to Jesus. We see it in the Gospels several times. John 16, These things I have spoken to you, Jesus says, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. In Matthew 9, they brought him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. In that same chapter, a woman with an issue of blood who'd been suffering for years and years touched the hem of his garment. And Jesus turned and saw her and said, Daughter, take courage, your faith has made you well. At once the woman was made well. And in Mark 6, Jesus appears to his disciples in the midst of a storm, and they are very frightened. And he says, take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus is saying, I'm with you. He's saying that to Paul. He's saying it to his disciples. Whether they can see him or not, he's with them. 
I don't know if you know this about uh, Mimi and I, but we do a podcast. It's called Mimi Reads the Bible. MimiReadsTheBible.com. I don't know if she's famous. Probably, yeah. But listen. We did this one this last time. We've been going through the book of Jonah. As we go through Jonah, we're just taking a little bit at a time, talking about it, talking about how we've seen different things in our lives or what we think was going through the minds of the characters. It's really informal. And as we're talking about this passage in Jonah, I said this is very reminiscent of a passage in the Gospels. Clearly they had Jonah kind of in mind when they wrote about the storm coming and Jesus is asleep down in the belly of the ship. And they go down and they wake him up and they say, we're going to die. Don't you care that we're going to die? And all this stuff is very much in line with the book of Jonah. And Mimi said, you know, what's funny is that none of them, in all their panic and all their fear and all their freaking out, thought, we'll be okay. We've got Jesus here. We've got Jesus here with us. We'll be fine. And we kind of both realized in the same moment that all of us who have put our faith in him can say that at any time. Yeah, we can't go down into the belly of a boat and see him there with our eyes, but he is with us. Just as he was with Paul in the, in the council when he was being punched in the face and with him later in the barracks when he didn't know what was coming next, just as he was with his disciples, he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. In fact, he says that in the process of giving them a commission to go out and proclaim the gospel. So as we go out, remember to keep your conscience clear that in order to proclaim the gospel, you need to be able to say, I am in good standing with this God who has saved me. I'm not hiding from him, running from him like Jonah. I, I have, by the blood of Jesus, had my conscience cleansed and my sins forgiven. And I am telling you that not only has he done this for me, he's doing something in me. Secondly, we have to make sure we don't worry about offending the world. We're going to offend the world with the gospel if we're preaching the gospel, sharp edges and all. We've got to get over that because it's little bits at a time. Let's just take this part as a little bit offensive. Let's just, we'll, we'll, we'll weaken the language here because that makes, we'll have more inroads if we do that. And then later on, we'll bring the full, God. yeah, right. What happens is slowly it gets worn away and worn away. There, there's a story of an old church that had uh, over the, the archway, a beautiful archway into the church, the inscription, We preach Christ and Him crucified. The Apostle Paul said, I desire to know nothing about you. I determined to know nothing about you but Christ and Him crucified. And they did for a generation. They preached the gospel, Jesus dead and buried and risen again and giving us salvation. But then... What happened is that there was some ivy growing along the side of the building and it, it covered over and him crucified. And, and as luck would have it, the same thing happened in the church that the next generation, they preached Christ, right? They preached Christ, the good moral teacher. They preached Christ, the, the revolutionary political figure. They preached Christ, the self-actualized individual. And then the next generation came and the ivy grew more, and it, it covered over Christ, and it just said, we preach. And they did. They preached all sorts of stuff. They preached, they preached good ethics, and they preached tolerance, and, and they preached uh, caring for people, and they preached all sorts of different things, and people came, and they listened. And you know, I don't know about the uh, growing of the ivy, but I could be describing Judson Memorial Baptist Church in New York. 
which was founded by a descendant of Adoniram Judson. They preached Christ crucified, and then they preached Christ, and then they preach. And now you go on their website, you cannot find the gospel of Jesus Christ anywhere. We have to be weary, very, 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 weary of the gospel being doled down. And finally, as you preach, make sure you remember he is with you. He is with you saying, take courage. You will testify to me wherever you go. I am with you. Testify to what I've done for you. Testify to the truth of the gospel. He is with us. God is with us. You know, it's, it's like that guy who was reading all through the, the, the thing in the, the board meeting, and he said, okay, the vote is these people are for the proposal. God and I are against it. Only we got to recognize I'm with him. He's not backing me up. I'm following him. And if I'm following him, if God is for me, who can be against me? If God is for you, who can be against you? There was a church father, Athanasius, that the, the saying is Athanasius against the world and the world against Athanasius. And the story is one time he heard that and he said, no, 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 no. Athanasius in Christ against the world. Suddenly it seems a lot more doable. I'll tell you what, I'm no great athlete, but I pick any 10 of you and I will beat you at basketball. Just, I'm serious. You 10 are just against me and LeBron James. I will put large bets in our behalf, because you know what? I don't even have to do anything. In fact, it would be better if I didn't. I'd be like, over here, I'm open, I'm open. If it's me and LeBron, we're going to win. And listen, if God is for us, who can be against us? Keep your conscience clear. Don't worry about offending the world. Remember, He is with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. The God of the universe, the Spirit that indwells you, the Son that has set you free, we are not alone. Let's go to Him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the example of Paul wanting to bring the Gospel, trying to bring the Gospel, having the discernment to see that he needed to move on. And Lord, being shrewd, shrewd as a serpent, and harmless as a dove, we pray that would describe us as well. That we would boldly proclaim the gospel wherever we can, and Lord, that we would be very careful about casting pearls to swine, but also remember that you will take the gospel to the ends of the earth, and that it's the most unlikely people who seem to become the most ardent and zealous followers of you. Lord, we pray that we would never forget that you are with us, just as surely as you were with the disciples down in the belly of the boat, just as surely as you stood next to Paul, you stand with us. Lord, we know you'll never leave us or forsake us. In your holy name we pray. Amen.